is straight to the source, your destination for food, views and big ideas. Brought to you by two of the best in the business, Tonya Barr and Lucy Allon. Join them to discover some of Australia's most dynamic food, hospitality and agribusiness leaders. Hello and welcome to Food, Views and Big Ideas. I'm Tonya Barr. And I'm Lucy Allen. And this is the podcast from us here at Straight to the Source. In this podcast, we will be introducing you to the people who are driving our food and hospitality industry forward. Whether it be on the land, in the water, in the kitchen or from the boardroom. Each of our guests are playing a significant role in the evolution of Australia's food identity and culture. And we want you to know who they are, their views and their big ideas. We're coming to you today from the traditional lands of the Gadigal people, and we'd like to begin by paying our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and we extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here with us today. Let's tell the listeners who we're talking with today. Yeah, so today we're talking to um, Matt Stone and Joe Barrett, who are two chefs that are all about challenging the status quo in a quest to unravel this big question around living and eating more sustainably. And so the conversation we're having with them is about this living experiment that they've been involved in, which is the Future Food System in Melbourne, which is a self-sustaining, zero-waste, productive house in Melbourne that is all about demonstrating the potential of how our homes can provide shelter, produce food and generate energy. Can you imagine being smack dab in the middle of Melbourne's city and like getting out of bed, putting on your bathroom, making a coffee, and then you have these strangers that are walking by. Yeah, and knocking on the door, probably asking for a coffee. Yeah, it would be really intense. And they actually touch on that in the conversation. So you chatted to them last year. Yeah, so this conversation was late last year and they were living in the house 24-7. And it's just, it's so interesting to hear the learnings they gained, the challenges they faced and how it's really informing what's possible in the future. So it's pretty timely to release this interview now as the project comes to an end next week. You know, when the house, um, it's going to be moved, isn't it, to its final resting place in Victoria? Yeah, it is. So it was really nice to visit them earlier this week and just see it for one final time in Melbourne before it before it moves but what's great is that it will still be lived in it just won't be this sort of living experiment that's on show to the world and now they've gone on to do other things yeah and they've got some really exciting projects um, going on matt has relocated to the northern rivers and he's been discovering producers up there and it's been great to watch his instagram feed to see what he's getting up to but he's also just announced an exciting new phase for his career he's joined a restaurant group which has two soon to be three venues the eltham hotel a classic aussie pub Chow Mate in Bangalore, and a new restaurant yet to be named, which in the short term, the pop-up name is called Chow Down. But <laughs> which I, I love. They uh, should keep that. They probably will keep it. That I'm sure cute. that will stick. Yeah, and Jo's been living on Flinders Island in Tasmania, actually, for the past few months. She's been living on a farm. She's been working really closely with producers down there. Uh, Have you ever been to Flinders Island? No, I'd love to go. Yeah, it's on my bucket list. Yeah, I'd really love to go. Maybe we need to do a chef's tour down there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds amazing. Hopefully her pop-up bake shop, shop, I should say, will still be happening. She's still got her wonderful Have a Go series publication. So we'll pop some links in the show notes, but you guys should definitely check that out. It's all about, you know, how you can tackle cheese making and bread making and charcuterie at home. 
And she's writing a book, she told us this morning. Yep. So she is working on a book all about how to live a sustainable metropolitan life. So very much informed by what she's been doing for the last year. Yeah, well, she would have drawn great inspiration from living in the house for a year. Yep. So she's working on that now and that will be released next May 2023. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so we'll pop all these links in the show notes. Awesome. So maybe we'll get the conversation started. I I kicked off by asking Matt where the sustainability journey began for him. So let's listen in. Sure. I guess um, as as a chef, as a young chef, I kind of discovered pretty early on the more ethically produced a a product or an ingredient was generally tasted better. So that was sort of my initial journey into um, sustainable food production is that um, just just simply the food tasted better. And then about 12 years ago, I, well, I mean, and I was working in a fine dining restaurant then and there was lots of sous vide cooking and lots of waste. Um, and it was something that I kind of acknowledged but didn't really make any change to, to it. Um, and then about 12 years ago, meeting Joost, uh, Joost Backer, who's our, our partner and collaborator and has been for, for over a decade now, meeting, yeah, working with him, you know, I think it was about 12 years ago, that really just changed things. And sort of overnight, I went from cooking really fine dining, you know, food in, in a really sort of you know, hectic sort of fine dining restaurant to, to running the greenhouse, which was a breakfast, lunch and dinner operation, huge covers that I've never, you know, never cooked for that many people before with this whole new set of boundaries. And I just had the attitude of just saying yes, uh, saying yes to not using plastic bags to cook in, yes to, you know, getting our ingredients in bulk, um, milk coming in kegs and all these kind of things that I'd never really even thought of before. But um, Yoast was really insistent on, on these were the systems that we had to use and we just worked it out. So that was sort of how I, you know, found myself where I am today. Because that was a groundbreaking project at the time. You know, I remember you really sort of took people's attention in terms of what you were doing. Like you said, uh, not using plastics, getting uh, produce in bulk and, you know, really focusing on that that no waste approach well we just had the attitude of we'll just say yes and we'll make it up as we go like i barely (laughs) made bread and we're milling grain to make bread you know for breakfast service which is a pretty crazy sort of undertaking crazy idea then but you know much more the norm now um and joe what about you was there a, a moment for you where you sort of really felt that that things needed to change from the way you were cooking or approaching cooking and food I think always throughout cooking, I'd looked at ingredients coming into the restaurant and questioned where they were coming from and not necessarily in a way that I thought I could do anything about it, but more so we were getting sides of salmon in and I just always remember opening up the boxes and thinking, that's a lot of fish and how is that possible to keep doing that and then looking into the bins and seeing a lot of plastic or just rubbish in general I just always questioned it and then, you know, where did things come from? And as I kind of progressed through cooking and then I probably, when I was at the bakery at um, Tivoli Road and we were using so much flour and it was such a simple ingredient and that's probably where I started looking at ingredients differently. Like it wasn't just a bag of flour. It was like, wow, how much land did that take to grow? And, you know, Michael James is really produce driven. And it probably put me more onto a path around using really high quality produce and that were farmed ethically because like Matt was saying, they tasted really good. You got to meet the people growing it and producing it. And I really enjoyed cooking like that because you kind of connected the whole way. And I guess working in a bakery, the cooking is really skill driven and we were making everything. So I guess the two just melded together of, Um, I knew where these bulk products were coming from 
but I felt okay using them because they were coming from a good place. And then I guess when Matt and I were at Oak Ridge and then we were, you know, at the time I didn't think we were doing very much around sustainability in the environment, but now I look back now and, you know, growing food, composting, whole animal butchery, you know, what we achieved there, I, I guess I just wanted to do more and more and more, which has led to what the project we're doing now. I guess it wasn't one specific point, but just when everything adds up together, you can see that it's actually possible. Yeah. Maybe at the start of my cooking career, I was questioning these things, but I never thought that it was possible to do anything about it. Yeah. So the opportunity at Oak Ridge, I guess, really gave you the the, the chance to get much more involved and hands-on with the process of selecting where your produce came from because you started growing your own produce there as well did you you guys put the kitchen garden in at Oak Ridge yeah we did yeah that happened in the first six weeks and you know Tony and Alana were really trusting for us it took a little while like the first year we put the garden in and didn't you know we had grand plans but realized that it takes a bit of time to do things like that and it's long term but to be able to do what we were doing on the numbers that we're doing and I guess that's where Matt's experience with the greenhouse and silo and brothel just never faulting from your core beliefs around okay no well we're not going to use seafood even though we're you know got weddings bookings coming in or you know that was a real eye-opener for me when I was questioning those things to then now even though I had I had worked at brothel with Yoast and Matt and I had done the pop-up in Sydney just doing it on a big scale and seeing that yeah, he never faults from those things. I was like, oh, look, we can do it. And yeah, it was a real eye-opener that we were serving so many people, but sticking to our beliefs. Yes, have to stay strong to that, don't you? Did you get a lot of pushback from your guests and consumers in that sort of change that you took Oak Ridge through from, uh, you know, I read somewhere that you had five or six menus when you started there and you, you managed to sort of bring that back to this very local regional reflection of the Yarra Valley. Did, is that something you found people were open to or did you have to really sort of challenge consumers to believe and trust in you, not just the owners, but, you know, the guests as well? well we had just, you know, a few of the regulars kind of going, oh, you wouldn't mind having that dish back. or But in general, everyone was pretty open to it and welcoming and then towards the uh, end of our time there people were coming because you could taste the Yarra Valley or taste Hillsville in the food that we were cooking and um, I guess that's the beauty of cooking like that you get known for a region and representing that region so when there is travel people want to come and see what it's like in that area so I think people were really open to it and that's what we're finding with the project now there is that thirst for you know, local food and um, you want to feel good about what you're eating in the sense of it's nourishing, but also that it comes from a good place. Yeah. So Matt, going back to, again, the greenhouse birthdays, just because it was so much at the forefront of, of what you're doing now, how did you bring your team on board to believe in what you were doing? You know, it's, it's not something that you're really exposed to as an apprentice or, um, you know, out on the floor and, you have to have your team believing in what you're doing. Did you have to really encourage them to go on that journey with you or were they right there behind you? Um, it was really difficult. I was, you know, I was only 21 running the restaurant and, you know, it was a huge responsibility. I still think it was a huge risk from, from Yost and Paul to give me that opportunity. Um, we're a, a rat bag bunch of just 
kids really there was I think we had about eight of us in our opening team and I know my sous chef Courtney who came with me from Star Anise Courtney Gibb he, he's a baker now um and he he and I just kind of made it up as we went but yeah well he was the oldest he was a year older than me so it was a 21 22 year old and some just qualified chefs and apprentices and we just kind of all had the attitude of let's just give it a give it a go so I think um everyone was on board we had no idea what we were doing. We were just being guided by Yosti and and producers and we just really, yeah, everyone really got involved and we had a lot of really great um, cooks come through that kitchen, which, which was really awesome. And actually the restaurant now is actually owned and run by one of my apprentices, you know, eight, seven, eight years ago from, from the greenhouse, which is a really nice sort of thing as well. Well, that's a great result. Yeah. And so in terms of bringing young people in the industry on that journey. I know that you both spent a lot of time nurturing the the skills of your team at Oak Ridge. And as we just mentioned before, from when you took on the Oak Ridge restaurant to, to when you left, you guys went from buying in a lot to then growing your own, but also really making everything. Do you think that's the way the industry needs to go to be able to sort of move forward in a more sustainable way? Yeah, it's a really, it's a difficult one because Balancing the labour of making all of your own charcuterie and cheese and stuff like that to the to comp- and particularly if you're using eth- ethical ethically produced ingredients, you know, like buying milk from from pasture fed Jersey cows direct from a farmer, um, buying whole pigs that have been fed on you know spent um, botanicals from Four Pillars Gin. All of these products are expensive, and then labour is really expensive. And obviously, trying to look after your staff to not work, you know, more than forty hours a week. So there's a lot of balancing. So it is a really difficult thing to do. It's definitely cheaper and easier to not do it that way. But um, we we took the approach at Oak Ridge that we we need to represent the area, and if we can't make it, we're not going to serve it. So you know, all that's why we did all of the butchery, milling all of the grain to make flour. I mean, grain was probably only one of the few ingredients we brought from outside of the Yarra Valley. But still, I'm you know I'm very proud of the fact that you know we ran that really large restaurant doing functions, weddings, and we didn't serve one plate of seafood in five years. And not that seafood shouldn't be served, but I feel it needs to be served in the right place in the right context. And I think looking out over the rolling hills of the Yarra Valley doesn't give a sense of, I feel like a piece of snapper. Like it's just not quite right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it, yeah, it's definitely more challenging. Uh, but these are skills that, you know, they, they're really artisanal, ancient skills of preservation and, and making delicious food. And, you know, so many cooks have, you know, cooks of 10 years have never made a salami, you know, cooks of 10 years have never made fresh curd. And I think we've got this real convenience in our, in our food system that is generating waste and making food wasteful because it's coming packaged. And, you know, I think what we're doing, what we have done and what we're doing now is nothing new by any means. We look back at proven primitive techniques and, and introduce technology and new ideas to them to, to produce food. So, I think you just have to be adamant on it. And I think it's much more enjoyable. You know, our team was with us for a very long time at Oak Ridge because we we're constantly learning new skills and training each other and, and doing new things. So you stay much more motivated and much more enthusiastic to be at work if you're making stuff and learning rather than just cutting open packets. Yeah, really engaged. You mentioned time just then, and it's interesting. I'm reading a book called The Missing Ingredient by a UK author called Jenny Linford. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it is about time. It's about how time is so important in cooking. And I think we have, we're in this sort of culture of convenience that people value fast, but it just doesn't necessarily get you the best results, which is what we're all really learning. Um, and that's exactly what you just, what you just touched on there. So, from Oak Ridge to what you're doing now, Future Food System, it's a pretty big leap from growing your own food and running a restaurant to then actually 
living in a self-sustaining zero waste house right in the middle of Melbourne's CBD. You built it as well, didn't you? You built, you built it, you're living in it, you're cooking from it. Tell us a little bit more about the future food system and how you sort of went from Oak Ridge to, to that project. Well, the project changed a bit from the original idea, which when we were at Oak Ridge, Yost kind of said, oh, would you be open to living in a house that produces all its own food and power and, you know, we'll just demonstrate that it's possible to reconnect with our food system and live amongst it. And that could be a good demonstration that it is possible. And then, you know, Matt and I were like, yeah, no worries. And part of that was you still have to work full time because we want to show that it is possible for just general public that you could still maintain a normal life. And then the only difference is that you go to your balcony to pick your food rather than going to the supermarket. Yeah. And then it kind of evolved over about five years just because of, you know, permits and things like that. And then towards the end of those five years, that's when uh, Federation Square reached out and said to Yoast, would you like to put the house in Fed Square? And then he (laughs) said to us, you know, how do you feel about that? And (laughs) I don't know if we both really considered what that meant, but we were open to the idea. And then, yeah, last year in July, the shipping, or not the shipping containers, but the steel frames got dropped in. And then, yeah, we got to see the house being resurrected just in front of Deacon Edge on the Yarra River. And I kind of, I guess, being a part of the build and watching it, it really clicked with just how much detail Yost had put into this house around not using FFC certified timber and using agroforestry and the whole idea of chemicals where you live. Um, recycling and zero waste building as well. And I guess I didn't realise how much waste was in the building industry and where you live, yeah, you really are a part of it. So watching that, um, it did help click what the whole project was about. And then I guess that finished in December and then we started growing food. Well, food was actually already, we were harvesting in November before the build was finished. And it was a difficult build just because no one had ever built built a house in Federation Square that was also going to be a restaurant and it was a, a complex, <laughs> complex situation. So there were a few delays and then, yeah, I guess the project changed to then um, being in such a public area, we wanted to invite people in for dinners and to be a part of what we were actually doing in the project. So the transition from Oak Ridge into Fed Square and Future Food System was probably more about, you know, we could have stayed at Oak Ridge for a long time. It was really, we were learning, there were lots of projects and they were ongoing, but you only live once and to challenge um, and something that we all really believe in about the food system and, you know, being positive about it as well. I think there's a lot of negativity around all the problems that we have as an industry and, you know, as a planet in general but being part of a solution and an empowering solution for people was really exciting and probably why we jumped on, you know, jumped at the idea. It does definitely sound like, you know, you have to just jump in and not ask too many questions because if you ask the questions, you probably <laughs> convince yourselves it's not the right thing to do because I can imagine that the, the journey you went on with, you know, the challenges you must have faced in getting the project up and running. So had you decided what you wanted to grow and has that changed from what you're growing now before, before you sort of moved in and the, the build had finished? 
How did that all work? Things have definitely changed along the way. (laughs) And that's just through learning and experience. We knew that there were going to be a lot of different varieties of things. I think we're all surprised at how much food was growing straight away. You know, I remember harvesting, yeah, harvesting before the build was done. So I think it was more a surprise of, oh, wow, this actually works. And then up to, I guess, now things that aren't working, that's been a real eye-opener. I don't know. What do you think, Matt? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's we're just growing seasonal food. So it's things that we would have always grown in um, back out at Oak Ridge in the garden, things that we grow here um, at our other place here in Northcote. I think the biggest surprise for me is um, growing grains and pulses. You know, I've always assumed you need to have vast, you know, like our trip to Mount Zero, you know, where you look at those olive groves and where the chickpeas and stuff are growing. It's as far as you can see, it's this stuff growing because it's on such a large scale. But from a couple of barrels of chickpeas, we had enough chickpeas to, to serve to guests and to, you know, get a, a really decent crop from. Uh, buckwheat is another one that, you know, grows really fast. You can get like I reckon you could probably get six harvests a year from buckwheat. It's, it's that prolific. Uh, it's also nitrogen fixing. So it fixes soil from, you know, where you've had really hungry plants like corn or cabbage and tomatoes, stuff that takes a lot of nutrients out. These crops actually thrive and fix the soil, you know, where they were grown. So I think that sort of, because uh, we went from humongous three gardens, um, you know, greenhouse, huge growing potential full-time gardeners at, at Oak Ridge to, a few barrels on a balcony, essentially, but um, <laughs> the whole house is 87 square metres and that would have been half of our smallest garden at, at Oak Ridge, you know. So seeing the scale on, in which you can produce, you know, a, a huge amount of food is really is really cool. Um, and then further than just, you know, growing the, the vegetables and stuff, you know, we've watched trout um, grow from baby fingerlings to plate size. Uh, we've had yabbies that have reproduced, uh, you know, tiny little yabbies that are now, you know, mature yabbies that are, yeah, are about to have their own little yabby babies. Um, you know, there's there's been aquaponics issues or figuring stuff out through the whole journey. Barramundi have been a real challenge um, to grow, but we've, you know, had some had some good success and then we've, you know, had some challenges and back and forth. And we're about to start growing uh, Murray cod, which is a really cool, um, another native species of fish that um, is, is quite delicious and thrives in an aquaponic system. So, yeah, I think um, the plant stuff we had a good handle on, but we were surprised with the, the productivity and yields. So then start, when you start farming, you know, aquaponics and stuff, that was a big learning curve. But it's also, you know, it really opens up the idea of there's so much unutilized space in cities it could be productive food areas. You know, there's no... This tiny house is a really great example of the fact that our cities can be absolutely product as productive as any agricultural area. And in fact, it's probably would make more sense, you know, building like the Rialto Tower here in Melbourne has something like 11,000, uh, 1100,000 litres of grey water a day that could be easily, you know, uh, watering plants that were on the exterior of the building or even on the roof or, you know, inside in, in lobbies and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely the cities have, have much greater potential to grow and produce food than we're really giving them a chance to, I think. There's all those rooftops and, you know, in Australia, we're so lucky with the amount of sun that we get. So it's almost, you know, it's incredible the, that the it's rainfall, not happening. The rainfall in Melbourne is, is huge. You know, the amount of rain that washes off roofs and doesn't get, you know, filtered through soil and, and cleaned and, and adding to, to nourishing. You know, if we had roof gardens, the temperature of the city would be a lot less through summer. Uh, it would be warmer through winter. You know, these kind of ideas are spoken about but not really put into place. You know, it's always difficult dealing with councils and regulations and stuff like that. But given the chance, you know, to, to green our cities would, 
would have a huge impact on climate change. It would have a huge impact on people's diets and people would simply be eating more delicious local food. So when you cook for people in the house, they come and have the beautiful menus that you put together from whatever's growing at that point in time. Do you bring any ingredients in or is everything on the menu from the house? No, we, we top up on ingredients. You know, initially this place was never meant to be a restaurant at all. You know, through leaving Oak Ridge and through the last you know, t- period of time, um, we, we turned it into a restaurant because, you know, we're cooks and the greatest way for us to share these ideas was through plates of food and bringing people in. So we definitely, we top up on ingredients for our guests, but the rule is it has to be growing or had grown or about to be grown at the house. So, you know, the vegetables are in the garden, but we might buy a few more from, you know, organic farms. Things like aquaponics, you know, to serve fish. Uh, we would put too much, we probably could grow enough um, at the house, but the fish and stuff would be under much more condensed situation. So, yeah, and I think it's also really great to to support people that are doing great things, you know, in, in farming as well. So, yeah, we... we Definitely top up. And, you know, the cuisine that we're creating, though, is all things that are urban crops. So there's no dairy, no, you know, the proteins of fish and insects. You know, having a cricket farm is, is so cool to, to be able to grow crickets um, and enough. You know, we've had huge success with, with farming crickets um, and they're eating waste outside leaves of cauliflowers and stuff that is definitely edible but not often used. So, yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's been a really interesting journey with, with that. But there's some crops that we've definitely grown enough of, you know, ample of that we've then fermented and stuff as well. So I think people being able to come in and dine in the house is a really fantastic way for you to be able to demonstrate that some of these alternative ways of, of cooking are not only viable and also, you know, necessary for us to look at, but also absolutely delicious. Because I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges is people think, oh, crickets or snails or whatever it might be. But that leads to a really interesting conversation, I think, about what the future holds in terms of alternative proteins. I think we have to open our, our eyes to what they are and what they could be. So what's what has been your experience of growing and cooking with with alternative proteins? Uh, the crickets have been awesome. You know, we had cooked with them in the past and had them, they were frozen, but harvesting crickets, they taste completely different. They produce really quickly, so they lay eggs nearly every week. And it was really cool. We didn't probably know that much about them when we got them and um, one of our first dinners, we had some guests come in and I think they were from Singapore or um, maybe from China and they were speaking Mandarin we didn't understand what they were talking about, but they were huddled around the MCG, which we call it the Melbourne Cricket Ground, and they were talking and trying to get them upstairs to invite them up to have a drink. And they were just, you know, talking away over the crickets. And one lady turned to me and she's like, oh, you've got a lot of females in there. And I nearly fell over. I was like, what do you mean? And then, <laughs> you know, I guess was actually the one to tell us about how to distinguish between males and females and how they lay eggs and the whole history behind crickets uh, in China. So a lot of the alternative proteins are just, you know, normal in other cultures. And that's probably been a part of learning about cooking these things is that we're just looking to other cultures and history of what um, and how they've been cooked. And that's been really fun because it's just like a little rabbit hole kind of Mm -hmm. open up and you see that, what we think yeah, is the future of food has actually been around for a very long time. And every, you know, people have been really open to, I don't think it's necessarily just putting a cricket on a plate or frying a cricket and eating it. It's what you can do with 
drying them and turning them into seasonings or into flowers, adding them to things. And that's been a big part of if we are serving protein or trout or um, barramundi, things like that, not necessarily just serving them as a piece of fish. It's heroing what they're going with or adding them, incorporating them into a dish and uh, maybe yeah, not making it the full centrepiece and steering more into different vegetables and grains and you know, mushrooms have been a really big part of the diet at the house because they're so easy to grow and there's so many different varieties that we didn't even know about, especially native Australian varieties that are absolutely delicious and people are loving them. Yeah, yeah, the mushroom, the mushroom <laughs> looks amazing and it's a real centrepiece of the house, isn't it, as you, as you walk in. So, you know, there's a lot of talk about sustainability and food production and you guys I guess have you know you, you grow your own food as well as as cook so you've got a real first-hand experience of of what's involved in being self-sustaining and zero waste what are the things that that need that that can happen immediately to change the way our industries sort of operating what you know I think people are very engaged in the idea of it but they don't really know what they could do to to change or move things forward so what are the, what are the things you would recommend people could consider doing from an industry perspective the easiest thing to do is eat locally and seasonally that's that's a huge thing and I think people kind of might overlook that um but the more localized uh, and the more seasonal your food is, first of all, it's it's at its at its cheapest generally, and it's at its most delicious. Um, so, you know, instead of buying asparagus in winter or autumn that's come from Mexico or Peru, wait for the local asparagus, and, and it's more exciting and it's it's more yummy. Yeah, I think that's it's it's so simple um, to make a massive change is to eat locally and eat seasonally, and then when you start that, you know, by you know t- always carrying bags with you, always having a coffee cup with you, just basic stuff that. Once it becomes habit, you don't even realize you're doing it. But, you know, and, and you don't have to do everything all at once. You know, we've built this house that's an extreme sort of experiment into what is possible. But nothing is too small. No changes are too small. Like even if it's growing a pot of parsley on your balcony instead of in a p- plastic bag that's been trucked around the countryside, you know, been in, in and out of cold storage, in, you know, packed onto shelves, handled by other people, having a simple pot and picking what you need. You're not going to waste anything. It's not, um, you know, using electricity to, to store it and it's not um, coming in a little plastic bag. Uh, composting, you know, is, is another great way to to minimize you know food that's going into landfill which is just ridiculous you know we're creating synthetic fertilizers and putting natural fertilizers into landfill you know that's a really broken system so yeah i think just just gradual steps and nothing's too small is a really good start joe what are your tips yeah i think as a for industries and kitchens cooking for a lot of people i think composting is really underutilized that's probably something that yost it really clicked with me about nature not having any waste and our waste going back in as food, that's been a real sticking point about this house because, um, you know, soil nutrients comes from waste and it's a really, it's a big thing. So I think for restaurants, you know, compost is a must that would really help the food system as well. You would really get an idea of how much green waste you're having. So probably start utilising things a bit better. You'd see how much plastic you've got. So that is a um, a really big eye-opener, I think, composting. Do you think the change needs to come from the industry to help consumers change or do you think we need to sort of drive it from both angles because ultimately we're cooking for people that will pay a price to eat that that meal? So it's it, 
what comes first do you think yeah, like <laughs> I, I, it's funny because i i think originally i probably would have said it comes from the industry but it's been really interesting um, we did a bit of work with country road which sounds a bit funny but they had a heap of pressure from their you know database and their client base around where their clothes were being made and it pushed them to make a melbourne made jumper where everything has come from Melbourne and it took them a long time to develop. But I don't know if necessarily they would have done that on their own. It's come from the demand of questioning where's that coming from, who's making it, how's it died. So I think it is a bit of both. I think it would be smart for the industry to be on the front foot to make the change. And I think it is, you know, really smart for if you're interested in this stuff, and you start questioning it and lots of people do start questioning it when they're eating out or they're going to the supermarket, there'll be a market for it because, I mean, ultimately people, I think they're passionate about the environment, but it also has to add up, you know, on a business business side. So people see that there's customers there who, you know, are willing to pay um, and there's a demand for it. They're probably more willing to make the change. I think also there's this myth that cooking food that way or growing your own food or uh, doing what you're doing in the house is a really time-consuming, labour-intensive process, is it? Because you're both sitting looking really relaxed today. <laughs> I thought you'd, you'd be looking frazzled and, you know, you had a million things to do. But is, so what is, is, it, is it a very time-consuming process? Like what do your days look like day in, day out? Uh, it, it is for sure. I mean, we're lucky that we've we've been cooks for a long time, so a lot of this stuff's quite intuitive for us to to do in terms of you know uh, preserving vegetables and preserving abundance and stuff like that. I think it's just it's how you sort of dedicate your time, right? It's, it's how you know everyone's in, in control of of their own time. And if you want to make time to to grow food and make food from scratch, then you'll find that time. So I think it's having the desire to want to do it really. Like if you're not a cook, if you don't love cooking, then living this way wouldn't really work for you. Like it's not for everyone, right? Um, so there's levels of, 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 of effect of how these things can work from, you know, the household to the food you're buying to the whole food system. So it definitely is. Uh, and it's living this way is not for everyone. Like, it, you know, if there was six kids running around, it'd be a nightmare. So, you know, for, for us, I think um, we're, we're really lucky in the position that we're in uh, as cooks and our sort of profile in the in- industries that we have a, a voice that we can share through, you know, things like this podcast, things like social media. They're all really valuable tools. So I think... We, as, as cooks with, with this sort of profile we have, it's almost, you know, it's up to us to share these messages and share these ideas and the amount of stuff, you know, engagement we get on, on things like Instagram when we post, um, you know, dishes that we've made from waste or ingredients that would be waste or, you know, different sort of cooking techniques. People are really interested in it. So I think, um, you know, a lot of it's got to be led by people like us and, you know, there's a whole whole host of cooks around the country that are really closely followed by people at home um, that have a big influence. So I think it's almost our obligation to, to help with this stuff for sure. There are aspects of it that are really convenient though that makes it easy if I think there's an initial setup of time but then just incorporating it on your day-to-day and making it convenient for yourself to be growing things. It does become a lot easier, you know, growing some lettuce for salads and then you don't have to go to the supermarket to buy salad all the time. That for me is just like, oh, it's so easy. You don't have to think about what you're going to cook because it's just there and you're like, well, that's what we're going to be eating. So that side of it to take out the guesswork of what to cook and just be guided by what's growing is actually really, really convenient in that aspect. Yeah. 
Yeah, so nice about having to go to the supermarket all the time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it sounds like there's just that, that initial investment in, in, in time pays off in absolute, just really the, the flavor of the food you're growing, the convenience, the ability to just be so in the moment of, of what's growing and, and what's out there on your balcony. So you've got the rest of the year in the house. How long are you there for? And then and what's next? Um, so we're there until April. So it's actually Yost's mum, Leah, her house. So the house is module and it will be going to split back into the modules and then in April begin to be pulled apart and taken out to Mumbulk and resurrected, um, which is really exciting because there are a few parts of the house that aren't finished just because it's not its final resting place. So to see the house come down and be rebuilt will be really exciting. I can't wait to see what it will look like and I guess for the future is just to continue with this message of, you know, what's possible. I think that's been the biggest learning experience for me personally is there's been challenges when we've taken away sugar and wheat and things that, you know, for us, they're things that come easy. And I know that we can produce delicious food, but taking them away and challenging and learning has been really fun. So, you know, I'm looking forward to introducing some of those things back in and then seeing what we can do with it and, you know, helping, um, you know, if people do have questions and the industry does want to make a change, just, you know, assisting and being a part of those changes. It's really exciting. Yeah. It's fantastic to be able to share what you're doing because Tonya and I three straight to the source believe so passionately in, in it as well. And, you know, it's been very much behind what we've been doing for the last eight to 10 years of connecting people to, you know, connecting industry to the, the people that produce the food they're sourcing, but they don't necessarily ever make that direct contact with. Um, and it certainly changes the way you think about where you get your food and what you do with it. And as you said, seasonal food flavor, regional flavor, it's just also important in terms of what you, what you experience on the plate. I meant to ask you earlier, is anyone else in the world doing anything like this or is this a first? Uh, I mean, in terms of waste-free restaurants, Douglas McMaster in the UK, who was our head chef of Silo here in Melbourne when we, when we created that, he, he's taken the name and the brand of Silo to the UK and doing really great stuff. There's a lot of you know, chefs that are doing really great things but, um, and there's a lot of people that are living this way as well. So I think the combination of, of you know, delivering a, a high-end restaurant experience with a house with the parameters that we have, I, I would think that, that I don't know of anyone else that's doing things so hard, but definitely the elements separately, there is people you know, really excelling. And that's been a really big part of this project is we don't know at all. It's, um, it's a, a lot of collaborations with you know, builders and farmers and, and all sorts of people to, to get to where we are now. So yeah, definitely we haven't come up with all of this stuff ourselves. We've collaborated with a lot of great, really helpful people. So yeah, there's definitely some, some awesome things happening around. And, you know, I think if you can engage with community city gardens and stuff like that as well, you can become a part of these kind of communities pretty easily. Yeah. It's been just incredible to see how much food and what you can produce in an urban environment. It's uh, unbelievable. And I think that's What's worked out really well with um, putting it in Fed Square, it's just such a contrast to, you know, this amazing Melbourne city backdrop and then the house just kind of blends in and looks like it's been there forever but it's like overflowing with plants. And, you know, I think the vision for Yoast is that eventually, you know, you walk through the city and lots of buildings are overflowing with plants and we do reconnect with our ecosystem and and 
you know, that's, I think, a big part of it is realising that uh, just as an individual, you, you do have a role to play yeah. and that you are a part of it, you're not above it or you just uh, the link amongst it and that's the beauty of the house is just realising that, you know, when we step out of it, it doesn't work properly. So you just have to take your place within the ecosystem. Yeah. So don't think about it too much. Just jump. Just just jump in feet first, yeah. <laughs> like just you guys have. Be a part of it. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, thank you for for taking this journey on behalf of everyone that's interested in you know zero waste and self sustaining living. It's it's incredible to watch what you're doing, and you know I think everyone's really looking forward to hearing and, and learning more as you finish the journey over the course of the next year. Before we wrap up, I've just got one last question for you each. Who would you like to hear on a future Straight to the Source podcast? Adam James from Hobart in Tassie, Rough Rice. He's an extremely interesting guy that probably there's a lot of, you know, really great fermenters in Australia, but I think his knowledge uh, is phenomenal and he's really generous with his time and knowledge. Um, and he's travelled the world, you know, learning about fermentation techniques um, from, from you know, really ancient cultures. So he's definitely um, someone that would be worth um, having a chat with for sure. Yeah, that's a great suggestion. I've been watching his journey and I, yeah, we'd love to have a chat with Adam. And Joe? Um, I don't know if there's a certain individual, but I love the idea of people who make artisan equipment for specific cooking techniques even if it was fermenting crocs or knife makers or you know farming equipment that have been around forever you know flour mills people who really specialize in techniques of cooking you know artisan cooking equipment would be really cool I think okay so again (laughs) you know kind of just turning the clock back to not only slow uh, sorry, old cooking techniques, but the equipment they used to actually make to 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 fulfill those processes. Yeah, yesterday, because um, we grow oats, uh, we use a oat roller. And, you know, a lot of people didn't even realise the process. Well, a lot of people don't realise the process behind what a groat is to a rolled oat. And yeah. going through, you know, how to do that with equipment is really, really cool. Or, you know, stone milling. Um, for wheat you know there's all these amazing growers and then that person you know a farmer might not be a miller or and they're not a baker so I think there's always that little missing gap of the people who do the artisan processing yeah that's a good point okay we'll have to do some investigation (laughs) into that and we'll let you know what we uh what we unearth (laughs) thank you both so much for for joining us today it's been really really fascinating hearing a bit more about what you're doing with Future Food System. And we're really, we're looking forward to continuing watching your journey and, and learning learning from you. But thank you for being so generous with your time. And we look forward to catching up when we get down to Melbourne. Thank Thanks you for having us. Having us was awesome. Well, thank you so much for tuning in with us today. We really hope you enjoyed listening as much as we've enjoyed the conversation. You'll find links to anything mentioned in today's chat in the show notes. We have some extraordinary guests lined up, and we'd love for you to join us again. Please make sure you're following us on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss future episodes. We'd love feedback, good or bad, or perhaps a guest you'd love to hear from. Please just let us know. And the best way to stay up to date with what we're doing, who we're talking to, and where you'll find us around the country is to become part of our Straight to the Source community at straighttothesource.com.au forward slash community. Until next time.